Where are these missing pages? This map. We must have these pages back. This one's got pages missing. Why are the pages missing? Like a book with missing pages. Let me paint a small scenario for you. Say you are a businessman, a salesman at a sort of consulting firm, and you are asked by a very large corporation to help with a sale or to help bolster a previously built relationship. Perhaps you were invited to a business meeting where you are acting on behalf of that major company, and these two companies are looking to build a major mutually beneficial partnership that will be used to undercut the competitors. So you get to this fancy hotel, and there's no signage that shows that this meeting is happening, which is a little bit strange, but that's no matter. You walk to the first conference room and you enter it. So you don't know what these people really look like. You've kind of been only working over email. Say this is before Zoom or something like that. You may have seen profile pictures at one point, but those can be misleading. So you walk into this room, and there are a lot of different people. They all seem very comfortable with each other. They're talking in small groups. Some may be hammering out business arrangements. Others are perusing the hors d'oeuvres. What do you do? Well, if you're like me, you would stick near the shadows, kind of get a sense of the vibes, if you will, of the room, and maybe start to slowly break into one of these conversations, depending on how receptive they are. Some others of you may be the life of the party and immediately begin talking to people. Regardless, but if you're this businessman, you probably assume that this is the right room, so you might as well start talking. As you begin conversing with several people, you're kind of met with blank stares when you start talking about the business agreement that you are here for. Again, if you're like me, you would probably leave the room pretty quickly after that because this is obviously not the right room. But imagine you were raised in a environment where cutthroat and ruthless business was the norm and expected. And you're a salesman after all. You are raised in a world where you are taught that there's nothing that will stop you from gaining a sale and growing the business, going so far as to drive other businesses out of the area to make sure that yours can grow. In this world, a sale is a sale. And if you find someone that you've never seen before, well, getting them into your business and getting them into your ecosystem, well, that's a huge boon for the for that company and would raise your status tremendously. Besides, this other business that you were working with before, I'm sure they understand and I'm sure that you, they will set up another meeting. As you keep inquiring around the room, you begin to hear snippets 
that convince you further. You begin to hear hints that there's a very large cash balance, and they do seem to have a pretty robust supply chain, despite their many idiosyncrasies. So if you're raised in that environment where a sale is a sale and you must be ruthless and any sale that builds our company is worth pursuing with whatever means necessary, you would likely do that. Some of the astute listeners might have already picked up on what I'm trying to say here, and I don't want to squeeze this metaphor any more than I already have, but imagine you're the Spanish sailor trying to spread Christianity and gain fame and money for the great kingdom, the mother country, what would you do? If you were raised in that world, you're a devout Catholic and just saw the mother country drive out all of the the, the infidels, the Moors, from the peninsula. Would you act differently? If you thought that you were morally superior just by being Catholic, by being part of that company. I know a lot of you probably would, but this is hard to understand unless you were born into an environment like Christopher Columbus was. And many of us don't really understand why someone would be so ruthless or cutthroat. We look at bankers and and businessmen or venture capitalists and see them more as parasites in a system than any sort of productive force. And I'm not here to, you know, talk about the merits of this system of money, but rather just to get an understanding or to rather help understand why... Christopher Columbus would do what he did and why he would feel morally superior or morally righteous with the actions that he took. And not just Christopher Columbus, the Spanish in general. We will see in this episode many different characters, many different points of view, many different ways of handling this interaction with this business partner that they did not know existed until they got there. The two hemispheres the Eastern and Western Hemisphere, the Eurasian, Afro-Australian Hemisphere, and the American Hemisphere had been split for over 10,000 years. And they would merge again fully in 1492. Now this merger, this merger cannot be stated highly enough. And the consequences of this merger are catastrophic and wonderful, depending on which side of the world you began on. I don't intend to go into details of every single early colonial effort made by Spain and Portugal and others in the Caribbean and south of the Rio Grande River, basically. This is mostly due to it being slightly outside of the scope of American history, though to ignore these issues and to ignore these events would be a mistake and also would eventually come up to bite me because there'd be a lot of context missing. And there are major effects of this merger that I need to talk about. 
that are necessary to talk about and need to be discussed because without doing that, I would be doing a disservice to history. And that was one thing that I noticed in the AP U.S. History Notes was the lack of any mention, really, of the Spanish or the Portuguese uh, in South America and in Central America. I, this was something that was covered in a, like a world history class maybe a year or two before that, but it was never mentioned in the AP U.S. History Notes. The only mention in the U.S history notes that I have is where the Spanish were located, which is New Mexico, Arizona, Mexico, and Florida. Obviously, this is focused in North America. And there were three major characteristics listed in the notes. I remember we went over many more of them. We were just told to list three of them. And the three I listed were that they were based on missions, the Spanish were sparsely populated and natives outnumbered them, and that they had a lot of conflict and exploited the natives before later intermarrying with them. This part of the notes comes after all of the English uh, colonies are discussed, so there's also comparisons between the English and the Spanish, and the mention of the Pueblo Revolt, which we will talk about probably later in 1680. So this is not going to be covered in this episode. So this is an episode where We will be filling more like chapters than pages, but this is probably the last of those for a little while. This episode will bring us right up to about when we traditionally start American history education with the settlement of Roanoke or even the settlement of Jamestown. So let's buckle down here and begin filling in those many, many missing pages. The Age of Discovery is generally marked as beginning in 1492, and it is likely that there are some scholars sitting in a you know fancy room with wood paneling, si- sipping on their cognac and smoking cigars, saying, well, actually, Columbus was just one of blah, 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 blah. I mean, they'd be right, of course, as this is a complicated topic. There were others before Columbus reached America. Leif Erikson might be the most well-known. He was the son of Eric the Red and one of the Vikings that made it to Newfoundland in the early 11th century. There are also several fishing operations that took place uh, leaving from Bristol in England, on the western side of England, that took advantage of the plentiful cod fishing that was along the coast of Newfoundland, and Labrador. They were there probably a few years, maybe almost a decade before Columbus sailed for, well, Japan, but reached the Caribbean. Later adopters of this cod fishing were the Basque. They were well known for their whaling and fishing operations that began north of Spain, west of France, in the Bay of Biscay. And they eventually made their way up to Iceland and started whaling and and cod fishing off of the coast of Iceland. And it's possible that they made their way southwest to the same area where those Bristol fishermen were 
but the first mention of the Basque reaching that area is about 1517. This area of cod fishing was a well-kept secret by the Bristol fishermen and then later the Basque, but eventually these secrets got out and others in France and Spain and Portugal were able to find that area and capture some profits. And these fishermen from Bristol and maybe the Basque were some of those people that Christopher Columbus had consulted with to kind of get an understanding of where to go in order to reach Japan. See, he knew he needed to go south of there. He needed to go a different route than those fishermen had taken. And that's why he ended up in the Caribbean. He thought, well, those islands are there and those areas, those coasts, I need to avoid to get to where I need to go, which is Japan. Now, despite the fact that Columbus wasn't the first, he was likely the most pivotal, and his impact was astronomical compared to the impact by those cod fishermen. Instead of a business practice, you know, which would probably much be much smaller scope and, you know, worried about profits rather than glory or anything like that, Columbus was backed by the king and queen of Spain, and his mission was to spread Christianity. This was clearly his mission. And if we think back to that analogy I made at the beginning of this episode, Columbus was born into and raised in a society where the spread of Christianity and the subjugation of any other religion was the norm and expected. See, the reconquest, the reconquista of Spain from the Moors, the Muslim Moors that were living in the southern part of Spain for several centuries was just about over. And almost all of the Muslims had been wiped off the entire Iberian Peninsula. Along with this, other expeditions, not to the Western Hemisphere, but to nearby islands like the Canaries, had shown how to subjugate a people and spread religion and make them work for you. It's important to add a little bit of context to this Reconquista as well. The European Christian population had been worried for a while that they were losing the religious war, the eternal religious war, to take over the entire world with their one true religion. They were faced with the facts that the Muslims, the Islamic religion, controlled a lot of the trade that they got from the Far East. And this was further reinforced when Constantinople, the capital of the Eastern Orthodox religion, in 1453 to the Islamic Turks. The Reconquista was not only did not only happen after 1453, it had been going on for several hundred years. But this new felt sense that Catholics and Christians in general were being wiped away by the rising Islamic threat was very real to the Europeans. And we can look at it now and say that that's a little bit ridiculous, but we have to remember that this was a time before the Enlightenment, before secular societies became normal. See, religion was the one and only way for societies to exist. It was the crux behind peoples. Their culture was their religion. So 
when you look at the Reconquista, it was a way to spread the European way of life over what they thought was their rightful land. Now, looking back, you know, 500 years later, we can say, well, that was brutal and wrong and bad. But at the time, religious wars were the norm, not the exception. Attacks based on religion and genocides, if you will, based on religion were to be expected. Historian Alan Taylor describes the the world that the Europeans lived in like this. Quote, European Christians also felt hemmed in by the superior wealth, power, and technology possessed by their rivals and neighbors, the Muslims, who subscribed to Islam, the world's other great expansionist faith. Dominated by the Ottoman Turks, the Muslim realms extended across North Africa and around the southern and eastern Mediterranean Sea to embrace the Balkans, the Near East, Central Asia, and Southeast Asia. The long and usually secured trade routes of the Muslim world reached from Morocco to the East Indies and from Mongolia to Senegal. Within that range, Muslim traders benefited from the far-flung prevalence of Arabic as the language of law, commerce, government, and science. 15th century Christians felt beleaguered, on the losing end of a struggle for the future of humanity. During the preceding three centuries, European crusaders suffered bloody and humiliating defeats in their botched attempts to capture and hold Jerusalem. Worse yet, during the 15th century, the Ottoman Turks invaded southeastern Europe, capturing the strategic Greek city of Constantinople in 1453. The Turkish advance created in Europe a powerful sense of geographic and religious claustrophobia, which generated a profound longing to break out and circumvent the Muslim world. End quote. You can find these arguments unconvincing if you want to. But this was the world that the Christians in Europe were faced with. A world where another religion, which they felt was going to subjugate them, was encroaching on what they thought was their own holy land, their own way of life. Now, obviously, we know the end of this history and this story, and we know that the Christians did the exact same to other nations for several centuries after this. But in the 15th century, the Christians seemed to have their back against a wall. And some way to circumvent this was to avoid using those trade routes that the Muslims had had a stranglehold on. That wasn't the only reason that Christopher Columbus was hired, though. And it's kind of a misnomer to suggest that it was only trade routes or only trade that he was trying to procure. It was very obvious at the time that it was also Christianity that was trying to be spread to new peoples in the Far East to try to break through from behind and spread Christianity to those people and hopefully eventually envelop the Islamic world. Both of these missions were taken on by the uh, nations on the Iberian Peninsula, namely, obviously, Castile and Portugal, uh, later Spain and Portugal. And in his book, Before the Revolution, America's Ancient Pasts, historian Daniel K. Richter kind of lays out the difference between these two. Quote, The merchant backers sought gold, slaves, and yes, those spices that otherwise came overland to the Levant and then across the Mediterranean. But for Henrique, one of those Portuguese sailors, 
and the adventurers he sponsored, the primary factors were the ongoing struggle against Islam, the glory of conquest, and the hope of making contact with mysterious islands that ancient texts and maps insisted were there. The proclaimed purpose of opening a direct sea route to Sipangu and Cathay, that is, Japan and China, respectively, was not so much to trade for spices as to open an eastern military front against Islam and to retake Jerusalem. End quote. Now, when Columbus reached Hispaniola in 1492, if we think back to that, uh, that analogy I made at the beginning, he grew up in a world where spreading Christianity was his business. It was the business that he grew up in. Columbus was just one of many. He may have been a better sailor or eventually more impactful, but he was one of many of these conquistadors or explorers or Catholic conquerors or whatever you want to call them. And when he found that not only were these people not Christians and didn't really seem to have religions of their own from his perspective, but also that they had gold and a lot of people, he knew that he could exploit that. Furthermore, he saw that these people, in his view, were incredibly weak and used that to justify their subjugation. In American Colonies by Alan Taylor, he quotes Columbus saying, quote, They do not have arms, and they are all naked, and of no skill in arms, and so very cowardly that a thousand would not stand against three armed Spaniards. And so they are fit to be ordered about and made to work, plant, and do everything else that may be needed, and build towns and be taught our customs and go about clothed, end quote. On his second voyage... He brought several ships, about 17 ships and 1,200 men, and he put these men in charge of the local population, the indigenous population, the Taino or Taino, in order to extract this vast amount of wealth that he knew was there. These conquistadors enacted the encomienda system, a system that was not exactly slavery or serfdom, but basically created a feudal system in the New World. It was a slave system in everything but name. And despite the efforts of the king and queen of Castile, Fernando and Isabella, these systems were spread throughout the New World. And along with exploiting the labor of these indigenous people, obviously Christianity needed to be spread as well. And learning a little bit of the language of the Taino or Taino, the conquistadors would read aloud a proclamation. Quote, We ask and require that you acknowledge the church as the ruler and superior of the whole world, and the high priest called Pope, and in his name the king and queen, our lords in his place, as superiors and lords and kings of these islands and this mainland. But if you do not do this, or if you maliciously delay in doing it, I certify to you that with the help of God we shall forcefully enter into your country and shall make war against you in all ways and manners that we can, and shall subject you to the yoke and obedience of the church and their highnesses. We shall take you and your wives and your children and shall make slaves of them, and as such sell and dispose of them as their highnesses may command. And we shall take away your goods and should do to you all the harm and damage that we can as to vassals who do not obey and refuse to receive their lords and resist and contradict them. 
and we protest that the deaths and loss which we shall accrue from this are your fault, and not that of their highnesses, or ours, or of those soldiers who came with us. End quote. Now obviously, the natives had no idea what they were talking about. They did not speak Latin, or Spanish, or anything like that, and sometimes they would use some of the, some of the native language, but not enough for them to understand at all what they were saying, especially since these were words that didn't have any meaning to these people. They didn't know what a pope was or God. They had their own religions, and they had their own hierarchies, but they had no idea what these people were talking about. The Spanish would over time spread throughout the Caribbean with these same ideas, and along with it, they would spread disease. I'm not going to talk much about disease right now. That's going to be back around later. But just keep in mind that there is a massive amount of death happening, an unprecedented amount of death happening at each one of these stops that the Spanish make. This death toll cannot really be stated high enough. In his book, Before the Revolution, America's Ancient Past, Daniel K. Richter, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, states, quote, from a population of perhaps 300,000 in 1492, an estimated 100,000 were dead by 1496 and 240,000 by 1508. All 60,000 survivors were subjected to the encomienda, a system of forced labor that replaced the unworkable system of gold tribute in 1499. End quote. The encomienda system I mentioned earlier was not immediately put in place. Originally, uh, there was basically a gold tribute that was required by the Spanish from the natives in order to to use their labor and send it back to the Spanish mainland. Before the encomienda system, everybody over the age of 14 on the island, every single Taino, would have to show up every single day with some amount of gold. The amount of gold wasn't exceptional. It wasn't a ton of gold that they had to gather. But if they did not do so, they were murdered. And the effect of this was that it would cause infighting between these different families, tribes, whatever, to make sure that they met the standard and in order they were cutthroat about it. And there were wars between these different families or tribes, but also wars against the Spanish, which was part of the reason why the death toll was so large. So these natives were not just standing by and letting the Spanish do whatever they wanted, which is kind of sometimes the view that people have. This is leading back to the last episode of, you know, kind of giving them this idea that they were not really active participants in history. They were just kind of there waiting for things to happen. No, they were fighting back and they were fighting each other, trying to make sure that they were not the ones to die. This system was eventually obviously replaced by the encomienda, as I said, and then the encomienda was used later in every other new place that was conquered by the Spanish. And the encomienda system was much more top-down. There was much more management by Spanish conquistadors, but it was just as deadly. And before I get too far into this, I don't want to take away any of the agency of the people doing these bad things to the Spanish conquistadors. I, I did make note of the fact that they grew up in a obviously religious and contentious and dangerous society uh, where they needed to spread their religion in their mind in order to, pr to protect their, themselves. Whether or not this is true, 
didn't matter at the time. But that does not but that does not absolve the people, the Spanish, doing this, because there were some, and we'll get to them, that were against this. And even Spain themselves tried to counteract this by banning the encomienda system, but they didn't really have much sway in the New World. Regardless, the Spanish spread very quickly to every other island surrounding them. They went from Hispaniola to Puerto Rico to Cuba, uh, and then eventually made it to the mainland. The first conquistador to reach the mainland was Juan Ponce de Leon. He was born in 1474 in the Valladolid province in Spain and participated in the Reconquista to expel the Moors from Granada. And he was later on the second voyage of Christopher Columbus in 1493. In 1507, after successfully raising his rank in Hispaniola, he was granted permission to colonize the nearby island of Puerto Rico, which was called Borican or San Juan Bautista at the time. On his first exploratory voyage, Ponce struck gold and used the natives as slave labor to extract it. He became governor in 1509, but was pushed out in 1511 by Columbus's son Diego. But Ponce de Leon was rich enough at this point to fund his own expedition. Ponce de Leon might be well known for his attempt to find the Fountain of Youth, and this was actually not the original purpose of his expedition, it was just gold. Uh, This fabrication was actually created in 1535. In 1512, he traveled northward and ended up in Florida, between Jacksonville and Cape Canaveral, where he met the Ice People. He claimed this territory for Spain and called it La Florida. This was not what he was looking for. He was actually expecting an island, uh, which we have come to now know does not exist. But from there, he explored the coast of Florida and landed on the Gulf side where he met the Calusa. The Calusa were notoriously and extremely hostile to the Spanish, and all the different native groups on the uh, Florida Peninsula proved extremely difficult for the Spanish to crack. And we will talk about this in a little bit, but the the Spanish and uh, many others tried to get Florida to actually capitulate, try to get all of these natives to finally give in, and it took almost a hundred years for that to happen successfully before uh, for one of these nations, and we'll talk about the others that get there too, to finally have a foothold that is stuck in Florida. So this first attempt to settle La Florida was an abject failure. He tried again in 1521 uh, along the G- Gulf side again, and he fought with the Calusa and was killed. By 1521, there was another stretch of land that was being discovered and another native people that was being attacked in the eastern part of Mexico. The man who makes this journey is one Hernando Cortez. Cortez was born in 1484 in western Castile to a minor noble. He studied law in Salamanca and eventually made his way to Hispaniola, in 1504, where he worked alongside Diego Velázquez de Cuellar in 1511 to explore Cuba. He heard word of the Yucatan Peninsula, a great new land to the west, that 
was supposed to be good for a new colony. Cortez was sent there to explore, to see if that was true. He and his 500 men met with some Spanish that were stationed on the peninsula, namely Geronimo de Aguilar, who was a translator for the Yucatan Mayan. Cortez's men battled the Maya and later gained their loyalty before moving further inland. They continued until they met some representatives of the Triple Alliance. Cortez learned of the emperor, Motezuma, and the complex society that he was the head of. He also learned that the loyalty felt to the emperor was not very strong among these many, this diaspora of of natives. Of, and the further you got from the capital, the less likely that they were to be loyal. And breaking from his orders to just explore, Cortez settles a small little mission settlement called Via Rico de la Veracruz. This move was not seen as a very prudent one by many in his in his crew, but he destroyed the ships to disallow any desertions and continued inland. And eventually, he made it to the capital of the Triple Alliance, Tenochtitlan. And he saw what we mentioned in last episode, that great, beautiful city at the center of a lake with giant causeways leading to it, what seemed to be gold glittered everywhere along those, the roads, perfectly clean, huge temples. I know I talked about how the Spanish viewed the city and were in awe by it, but I think it's worth reiterating. In her book, El Norte, the epic and forgotten story of Hispanic North America, Carrie Gibson lays out what Cortez saw. Quote, in October 1520, Cortez reported to the crown that he, quote, this is quoting Cortez, could not describe one hundredth part of all the things that could be mentioned, end quote, about Tenochtitlan, before later attempting to relate the scale of the markets, quote, again quoting Cortez, there is one square twice as big as that of Salamanca, with arcades all around, where more than 60,000 people come each day to buy and sell, and where every kind of merchandise produced in these lands is found. Provisions as well as ornaments of gold and silver, lead, brass, copper, tin, stones, shells, bones, and feathers. Finally, besides those things which I have already mentioned, they sell in the markets everything else to be found in this great land, but they are so many and varied that because of their great number, and because I cannot remember many of them, nor do I know what they are called, I shall not mention them. End quote. When he arrives, he is escorted to the emperor. Uh, I should mention, on his way to Tenochtitlan, he attempted to make peace and ally with as many subjugated nations of the Triple Alliance as he possibly could. And when he arrives in Tenochtitlan, he is escorted to the emperor, where he promptly takes him hostage. He is unable to continue this, though, as he finds out that he is being charged by the crown, the Castilian crown, for his indiscretion and his lack of following orders. So he leaves, and by the time he gets back, the Spanish are under siege. See, the, the people, the Aztec people who lived in Tenochtitlan were obviously not happy with these new arrivals, and were trying to kick them out. But Cortez was able to convince Motezuma to try to settle them down a little bit. 
However, unfortunately, this backfires as Motexuma is killed in the process. He is killed when a stone is thrown at his head. It is unknown if this is by the Spanish or by a native, but regardless, the emperor was dead. Cortes had nothing to do but to leave. They were forced to retreat, but they sustained heavy losses. Some 400 of the Spaniards and thousands of the Tlaxcalteca who helped them were killed. This retreat was absolutely brutal. See, the Mexica, the Triple Alliance, had destroyed the causeways to leading to the city, but that did not prove to stop the Spanish, as in 1491, Charles C. Mann lays out just how brutal this is. Quote, Although the alliance destroyed the causeways in front of the Spaniards, the remnants of the invaders were able to cross the gaps because they were so choked with the dead that the men could walk on the bodies of their countrymen. Because the Mexica did not view the goal of warfare as wiping out enemies to the last man, they did not hunt down the last Spaniards. A costly mistake. Cortes was among the escapees. End quote. So the Spanish were able to retreat back to the capital city of the Tlaxcalteca and regroup. And they were able to get an army of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops of all of those natives and all of those different nations that hated the Triple Alliance those subjugated or just those that were enemies. So in August of 1521, when Cortes returned to Tenochtitlan, it was a quick surrender. And it wasn't just the fact that they were outnumbered. Smallpox had hit the city. Cortes reported this conquest back to his leadership and took ownership of vast swaths of land. Spain would now call this territory theirs, and the millions living there were now under the yoke of the Spanish Empire. The city was burnt down, and rebuilt in Spanish fashion, which is what we now know as Mexico City. And this area was basically the start of what would be named New Spain. About a decade later, the Spanish made their way around the south end of South America. I won't be spending much time in South America. I really only want to talk about this story because we mentioned these the Spanish arriving during the last episode. The Spanish troop, this small group of people, about 168 people, led by Francisco Pizarro, landed along the west coast of South America, near where Peru is today, in 1632. They were approached by many of the Inca, and they were brought to the center of of the city of Cajamarca. After Pizarro was able to convince the Inca to also come to the city center for a, a meeting, somehow the Spanish were able to surround the city with all of their cannons and guns. Atahualpa had about five to 6,000 troops. They were in ceremonial garb with fake weapons, but the Spanish had real weapons. A priest gave Atahualpa a breviary, which is a basically a, uh, a daily service, and the Inca tossed it aside, which gave the Spanish enough justification to open fire. They rushed in with guns and cannons, 
and completely overwhelmed those five to 6,000 ceremonial troops in the center of the city. And after the battle, Atahualpa was imprisoned. Now you have to imagine this happening as one of the Incan people. Charles C. Mann, in his book 1491, kind of compares it to if Stalin was held at gunpoint in front of the entire city of Moscow. Though like many major events that we will talk about, it's hard to know how many Inca actually knew what was going on. If you weren't in the city at the time, if you were, you know, one of those farmers or one of those workers in another city, you had no idea that this was happening. Regardless, the Inca tried to convince the Spanish to let Atahualpa go and leave them behind by offering a room of gold, filled with gold, a 22 by 17 room filled with gold. And remember, the Spanish walked into this city and they saw that the the houses were basically lined with gold. The outside of the houses were polished gold. And we don't see that today, obviously, because it was all taken. But imagine walking into this city glittering with all of this gold that you've been looking for. So they offered them uh, a room, one room of gold, and two of the same size of silver. The Spanish did not accept and wanted to conquer all of the Inca. And this led to years and years of battles that took place, uh, almost decades of battles that took place, because the Inca were no slouches, and they were not affected by disease quite as much as, say, the Aztec were. The Inca had many advantages. As we will see over time, the uh, Native Americans have lots of advantages that the uh, Europeans have to deal with, most of which is just knowledge of terrain. I mean, we, uh, as we understand, the Inca were in the mountains, and the Spanish had horses and guns and not nearly an extremely heavy armor. The Inca had very light cotton armor, which the Spanish actually started stealing from them because it was just as strong as the iron or steel armor that the uh, Spanish were wearing, but way lighter. The Inca also used, obviously, different weapons. They did not have guns, but they did have these slings that they could throw rocks at about 100 miles per hour and could kill if it hit the Spanish in the head. And they also used hot rocks and pitch and poured it down those epically long staircases that they had rising up the mountainsides. Eventually, smallpox would take its 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 toll on the Inca, and the steel and horses would eventually show their advantage in the battles once they were able to get them where they needed to be. And during all of this battling, there was also, similar to the Aztec or the Tripolawians, there were people that were trying to take down the Inca with hopes that they would eventually ally with the Spanish and get some land out of it. Obviously, this didn't work out this way, and we're They were mostly used for their bodies and uh, eventually just tossed aside, just like the Inca. There are around 200,000 casualties at the end of all of this fighting, and Atahualpa was executed. There's a lot of speculation about how the Inca lost and why they were able to be killed. The empire was able to be destroyed by only 168 Spanish. A lot of it comes down to what I've mentioned many times so far already, that they made mistakes. They deified. The generals were 
held up in almost as high of regard as the Inca himself, so replacing them was very difficult. Along with this, the the, uh, Inca did not really know how to handle horses. They did not know the tactics necessary to take on armies with horses in them or guns or steel. I mean, I mentioned that the steel and the horses were not all of that much of a a boon for the Spanish, and, and other armies in the past have been able to take down uh, horse-led armies. But if you have no idea how to take them on, you're going to lose. I mean, the biggest uh, historical evidence for this is the fact that the Mongols took over half of the Eurasian steppe, or if not all of it, on horseback because their enemies did not really know how to handle their hordes. Now this victory, you have to understand, looking at it from the Spanish perspective, kind of proved to them that these people that they met were backwards, upside down, not civilized people, and that they were weak and needed civilization, needed Christianity, needed God in order to save them. And this quick victory, or this seemingly easy victory with just over 150 people reinforced that in their brain. And along with this, the amount of gold and jewels and silver that they found here reinvigorated that spirit of the conquistadors to explore and conquer as much as they possibly could. Besides these four, which are probably the most well-known, you know, Columbus, Ponce de Leon, Cortez, and Pizarro, there were obviously lots of other explorers, lots of other conquistadors trying to take lands, find gold, you know, attain glory in the eyes of the, of the, uh, of the king and queen. But I'm not going to go through every single one of them because I feel like that would be very tedious and it would just be a lot of listing of names and dates But I think it is important to get outside the box of those four, because obviously that's why I'm here. In her book, El Norte, Carrie Gibson tries to lay out some of these different explorers other than the main four. So I'm going to go through a few of those, because I want to get a good sense of where the Spanish were, what they were doing, kind of getting a sense of where they were exploring and how that will impact where the other nations in this story were trying to settle. One of these conquistadors was Penfilo de Narvaez. He was a Spanish sailor that was likely uh, inspired by the likes of Hernando Cortez to find and extract gold from the New World. He landed near Tampa Bay in 1527 and was directed north by the local Tocobanga to find the Appalachee in the north who would lead him to gold. He and his crew traveled north meeting several peoples uh, before reaching the Appalachie, but there was no gold. It was just a lot of conflict and chaos. This was likely by design. See, the, the natives were smart. Again, they were human and they knew how to, how to handle the people at this point. They, were, they had known that uh, Ponce de Leon was one of those people that they could kind of trick and they knew what they wanted, so they would play into that. After a while, uh, Narvaez decided to cut his losses and left with his men. They attempted to sail out an open ocean, but never were able to actually leave the coast. They took refuge with the coastal Indians, but were soon driven out again, 
and decided that they would send a small group to try to find some fellow Spanish to help them off of the mainland while they waited off of the coast of Texas. Only four of those people survived the winter. Uh, Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca, Andre Durantes, Alonso de Castillo Maldonado, and a slave, a black slave named Estevenico. These four decided that they were not going to wait it out anymore, and they decided that they were going to keep looking for the Spanish and headed west because they figured that's where the, the Spanish would be. Along the way, they encountered many native tribes, were held captive, transformed into healers, and over the course of eight years, they finally crossed paths with a fellow Spaniard, Diego de Alcaraz, in Mexico. De Vaca wrote about this. This is how we know about this. these travels in his La Relacion, which was published in 1542, though. With all of these cases, we don't really know how true any of it actually is. Another of these explorers, these Spanish conquistadors, was Francisco Vasquez de Coronado. He was tasked by Antonio de Mendoza to find the seven cities of Cibola. Now, the seven cities of Cibola were this mystical, mythical set of cities that held great riches, and they were said to be in the southwest of North America. They didn't actually exist. Uh, but it was basically a hope that they would find another Tenochtitlan. So it sparked a great search for many decades, and one of those was Vasquez. Along with him were about 300 men, including Marcos de Niza and the slave we talked about earlier, Estevenico. During this exploration, the Spanish were able to find the Zuni city that Niza had seen earlier, which kind of prompted this idea of the seven cities of Cibola, but it did not live up to the legend. They stayed in a nearby town and used it as a base as they explored more of the surrounding territory. Uh, Separate expeditions that were sent from this area learned of the Wichita, far east of the southwestern uh, United States that they were in, and he was told of great riches there. In all of this exploring, including the uh, initial search for seven cities of Cibola, they traveled through Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas. And these expeditions actually lasted for decades afterwards, though no formal sediments were ever really formed in any of these areas. One last one of these explorers was Hernando de Soto, and he landed in Tampa Bay with de Vaca uh, in 1539. And he, he met with a captive of some of the local natives, Juan Ortiz, who acted as a translator for this mission. And DeSoto explored north from Florida into Georgia and South Carolina, where he met the Muscogee, and then he traveled west into Alabama, where he met the Choctaw, and he continued into Mississippi, meeting the Creek, the Caddo, Chickasaw, and Tupelo. And it was first here that the Spanish experienced the practice of scalping that was done by the natives. After three years in what is now the deep south of the United States, funds ran dry, but before making it back to New Spain in order to try to re-up those funds, DeSoto died around Arkansas, near the Mississippi River. The Spanish were not the only ones that explored the New World. The English and the French were not far behind after they found out that there was land between them and Japan and China, 
So they also hired sailors like John Cabot for the English, who attempted to find another route around the land that Columbus found to find a western route to India and China through the north. And in his discovery of this land, which actually was the same fishing land that the Basque and those Bristol fishermen had used prior, ignited this search for the Northwest Passage. Now, the Northwest Passage was this mythical, basically long river that would lead from the eastern side part of the New World and lead all the way to Japan or China. Obviously, we know that this does not exist, but this fascinated explorers for over a century and was continuously used as a justification to try to explore more and more of the coast of North America. The French also got involved, but a little bit later, when they hired Giovanni de Verzano, who sailed to the Americas in the early 1520s, landing in 1524. He mapped all the way from Maine to the Carolinas, landing in Narragansett Bay and actually kidnapping several natives there, some of the Poconoquet, and found that this area was very similar to that of France or Eastern Europe in general, and that there was not much silver or gold to be found. He eventually landed just about where St. Helena, the, the northern end of the Spanish La Florida, to try to set a base of operations to eventually try to uh, break into that Spanish barrier in the New World. Spain reacted by attempting to build a road from New Spain, uh, which was in Mexico, all the way to St. Helena, which obviously failed and failed miserably in their multiple attempts. After Verrazzano, Jacques Cartier in 1534, 1535, and 1541 attempted to create several more colonial settlements, along with trying to find the Northwest Passage to Japan and China. He found many large cities filled with natives. He found what he thought were diamonds and gold, but were actually uh, quartz crystals and fool's gold. It was around this time in the mid-16th century that the Reformation shook the entirety of Western Europe and reinvigorated the hatred between the French, Spanish, and English amongst each other. In 1562, Jean Ribot attempted to create a colony called Charlesfort, which is in South Carolina. And this was another attempt, similar to what Ferrazano attempted, to try to break that stranglehold that the Spanish had on the southern part of North America. The first settlement failed in 1562. It was attempted again in 1564 by René Goulain de Laudonere, who was also along with Jean Ribot in the first attempt. They attempted to become friends with the Timucua people and tried to trade with them, but the Timucua were farmers that really were more subsistence farmers. They only really cared about farming for what they ate. So they were not able to trade with the locals and quickly ran out of food and survived only by asking a, a, a passing English slave ship for provisions. The Spanish obviously were not happy about this attempt to 
overtake or attack the the Spanish holding of La Florida. That settlement of Charles Fort was abandoned by the time they got back, so they attempted to move a little bit south and created the Fort of Fort Caroline. At around the same time, a Spaniard, Pedro Menendez de Aviles, landed at Cape Canaveral nearby. He learned of the French settlement and wanted a dispatch of them very quickly, so he settled St. Augustine to prepare for an assault. He attacked Fort Caroline before the French could regroup and attack the newly formed St. Augustine from the sea. This assault was decisive, and upon returning to his own settlement, he had found that the French were not able to even make it to uh, St. Augustine as they were caught in a hurricane. He found the survivors and had them all, except for the Catholics, killed. So Menendez wasn't done here, though. He actually worked with the Jesuits to try to expand Spanish power north, as had been done previously. One of these was done with the help of Don Luis de Velasco. Don Luis was a native who was taken from his from his village, and he promised to help find that village and actually create a new settlement nearby, acting as the translator. Little did they know that he had a plan all along, and upon arriving near the settlement area where his village was, he escaped, went to his village, told them of the Jesuits nearby, the all of the Spaniards, and had them all killed. Don Luis was never found again by the Spanish after this point, and this actually led to the Spanish completely abandoning their goal of a fortified coast up the eastern seaboard. Menendez was not on that trip with the Jesuits, he just kind of helped establish the idea. So he continued work in Florida, trying to work with the nearby Calusa, and actually was given the leader's sister to marry and solidify a relationship between the Spanish and the Calusa. And this was actually fairly common in New Spain, and out of this grew the class of mestizos, which were the offspring of the natives and Spanish. Many times, though, this was not consensual. This was obviously forced via rape and uh, forced marriages and the like. But regardless, a new group of people began to grow who were a mixture between natives and Spanish as they were born in the New World and did not have a clear lineage to either of them. Jean Ribot, that explorer who died at the hands of Menendez, wrote a book after returning from Florida the first time after he got back to England. This was called The Whole and True Discovery of Terra Florida. One of the people that read this was one Richard Hacklite. Richard Hacklite was one of two men that had dueling visions for what the English were going to attempt to do in the New World in order to undercut the Spanish the best they could. And these weren't the only two men. They just represented these two dueling visions that took over much of the end of the 16th century all the way up through the beginning of the 17th. Richard Hacklite was one of them, the other was Walter Raleigh. What Richard Hacklite saw in that book was basically an inspiration for what he thought the English could do in the New World as well. He was an imperialist through and through. He wanted to spread the Englishness of his home country 
across the globe and for England to encompass the entire globe. He wanted every single human being on earth to live under the English crown because he thought it truly was the best place to live. He wrote a book that was published in 1589 called The Principal Navigations of the English Nation. And this laid out all of the different major journeys over the sea uh, that the English took. So some of these were very contemporary. They had happened, you know, since uh, in the last century or even within the last decade, such as uh, John Cabot. Um, But many of these were much older stories that were set out to mythologize the English exploits and kind of get a uh, English mythology into the ecosystem in order to help bolster his opinion on what the English should do in the New World. Hecklite was different, though, than those Spanish conquistadors that we've seen so much of. He did not want to subjugate the natives or the slaves or Africans in general. He wanted to integrate them. He thought that they could be integrated into the English world, into the English empire, as basically just more citizens. They were not subservient. They were not to be slaves. They were not lesser, other than their culture not being that of the English. See, he saw these people as good people, just misguided, not backwards or upside down or subhuman. In his vision of a colony, they would seek out the good natives. The bad natives were those that did not want to be under the English crown. They would seek out the good natives and integrate them into the colony. In his book, American Slavery, American Freedom, historian Edmund Morgan lays out this vision of Hacklite. Quote, Nothing was more important, he said, than to get on good terms with the Indians of the area where the settlement was made. In this way, the English would learn, quote, this is quoting Hacklite, all their wants, all their strengths, all their weaknesses, and with whom they are in war, and with whom confederate in peace and amity. End quote. And in, in doing this, by understanding the natives themselves, they could use them more carefully inside of the English ecosystem. They could understand who they could trust, who they couldn't, who they would need to go to war with in order to help maintain the good relations with the good Indians, if you will. And all of this was to serve one major end, and that was to subvert the Spanish in the New World. Hecklite did not necessarily want to just spread England to areas that were not already settled. He wanted to take over the world, right? He wanted to get rid of the Spanish entirely and rule over the natives in order to drive out the Spanish. This was not him wanting to affirm their right to the land or anything like that. He was an imperialist through and through. And Hecklite saw something else that was troubling to him that made a colony even more necessary, and that was the growing population in England. See, the population grew between 1500 to 1650 from 2.6 million to 5.6 million, more than doubling in those 150 years. Now, again, Hecklite was writing at the end of the 16th century, so it was probably closer to four, 
four and a half million people. But still, those two million almost doubling from 1500 to the end of 1500, uh, to the end of the 16th century, was troubling, and the economy of England could not keep up. 25 to 50% of the population was below the poverty line throughout the 16th century. So Hecklite saw this not only as a way to spread English culture, but to help alleviate the stress that the growing population was putting on the economy. He thought that England could send manufacturing equipment to the New World, where it would be used to extract and uh, used to manufacture things out of the great resources that were already known to exist in the New World, and give jobs to the poor, destitute, and the criminals. The opposing view of all of this was Walter Raleigh. Walter Raleigh did not think that England needed to build its own empire in the New World. Rather, he thought that it was better to just extract what was possible from the Spanish themselves. He instead wanted to institute and bolster a already existing world of piracy in the New World. And one of the most famous that he felt was uh, the example of this was Sir Francis Drake. Drake could, I could make a whole episode just about Sir Francis Drake, and, and obviously piracy in general was huge during this time, so I will save that for another episode that I will go into a deep dive about piracy. But Sir Francis Drake was extremely successful in harassing the Spanish and stealing their goods and gold and everything that they had extracted from the New World. And he was most famous for liberating slaves in Spanish territory to help undermine the Spanish rule in certain regions, um, one of those being Panama, and also raiding and stealing from Spanish ships. This, This extraction of wealth from the Spanish specifically had been very successful. Walter Raleigh understood that if you steal enough or conduct enough piracy, then at that point, you're basically conducting statecraft and taking land and even entire countries or entire colonies or whatever away from your enemies. While he was awaiting trial in the Tower of London, he was asked by the Lord Chancellor of England about this, because piracy was still seen as a bad thing. But Raleigh thought that enough of it changed it from piracy to something different. In American Slavery, American Freedom, Edmund Morgan lays out Raleigh's argument like this, quote, Raleigh had admitted to the Lord Chancellor of England that he would have taken the whole Spanish treasure fleet on the high seas in a recent voyage if he could only have found it. The Chancellor said, quote, Why then you would have been a pirate? And Raleigh replied, Oh, did you ever know of any that were pirates for millions? They that risk for small things are pirates. Morgan continues, If a man can steal an empire, he becomes not a thief, but an emperor. If a pirate captures a large enough prize, he may be transformed into a statesman. End quote. Now these two different competing visions were at the heart of the colonial efforts in England at the time. And 
The first winner of this was Walter Raleigh. He won the first battle, and he was given a charter by Queen Elizabeth I to found a colony in the New World, north of Florida, to act as a base of operations for piracy. He was granted a charter to settle near the Spanish settlement of La Florida, though he ended up in North Carolina near the Roanoke people, and named the settlement after them. The main objective of this colony was to act as a base of operations for raids against the Spanish, as I said. In 1584, when they landed on an island just outside the Outer Banks of North Carolina, about a hundred men were sent there to as a garrison under the command of Ralph Lane. The bay near the island was much too shallow for large ships, so exploratory missions were sent out to find deeper harbors, which they found among the Chesapeake people, thus naming that bay, which we will become intimately familiar with after them. Another expedition went more inland, where they met the Choanak people and the chief Manatanan, and he told the English of great riches just outside of his territory. Though, upon returning back from this mission, those men found that their colony, Roanoke, was in conflict with the natives nearby, so that location was abandoned. And there's the apocryphal story. There's the very commonly told story, and this is told in the AP U.S. History Notes. I remember this very vividly, that when a resupply mission came back to Roanoke, they found the village just completely abandoned with, I believe, the word Croatoa emblazoned on one of the small huts. So it's unknown exactly what happened to the Englishmen that lived here. They could have been killed and taken away, or they might have even just joined one of the nearby tribes because they just ran out of food and needed to find somewhere to find shelter. Most likely, though, the settlers tried to move inland to try to help themselves and find food, but they were later killed, some by the Croatoans and some by the Chesapeake. After this failed colony, it was determined by the queen that this attempt at colonization was much too costly and was given up. And the other thing that was happening around this time was a war with Spain. This moment, which happened in 1588, where the Spanish Armada, the greatest navy in the world at this time, at least in the Western world, was defeated by England. This was shocking to the world. This battle basically became a turning point between these these two countries and throughout the world. See, the, the British Empire, despite these failed attempts to colonize the New World, were starting to expand, and the mainland was starting to become a little bit overcrowded. And, and England was trying to find ways to find room, basically, for their growing population. This battle marked the beginning of a transition from Spain to England as the biggest empire in the world. Spain still clearly held the upper hand in the New World, but England showed that with this battle that they deserved a place at the imperial table and, and became much more willing to start fights and pick fights with the Spanish. Before I get to the impact on the natives and the land, I want to 
take a step back and look back at the century that we went over to kind of go over some key points that I think are important to remember going forward and just looking back. I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that the conquistadors, the Spanish that came over, were in a world, they grew up in a world that was very hostile in their eyes to their way of life. Whether or not this is true is irrelevant. Every day we do things that we think are necessary to live a life that we want to live, but may not be. So it's hard to look in retrospect at these actions as, you know, unnecessary, which they probably were in the way that they were trying to undercut a Muslim population encroaching on the Western way of life that may have been overblown and likely was, but they didn't know that. And we only have hindsight to know that. That is also not to say that every single Spaniard, every single person from Western Europe, from France or England, also thought that. I stated before that the king and queen of Spain at the time tried to end the encomienda system. They tried to make sure that it didn't get to the point that it did, where there were several slave plantations spread throughout every single island of the Caribbean by the end of the 16th century. And I want to go through one specific story, one specific person who I think exemplifies this idea very well, that you can break from the mold. You don't have to follow the, the rules that are played out for you. That is Bartolome de las Casas. And de las Casas was a conquistador. He came to the New World in 1502 at the age of 19 and was the leader of an encomienda that his father had started. So, as you can tell, he was bred and baked into this entire system. But becoming a leader of an encomienda, he saw the brutality that the Spanish enacted on the natives, and that had a lasting impact on him. He was on the journey alongside Diego Velasquez de Cuellar and Hernando Cortez on their expedition to Cuba. But instead of invigorating this sense of adventure and exploration and, and need to find more gold, he saw the mass killing of natives as destructive and downright evil. So he decided then and there that he would leave his position as the uh, head of the encomienda and put an end to all of the violence that he was seeing in the Caribbean. So de las Casas went back to Spain to try to convince King Fernando as well as his successor, King Carlos V, after Fernando died, to put an end to the encomienda practice. While in Spain, Las Casas wrote a, a short book about the treatment of the natives in the West Indies to give to King Carlos V, the short account of the destruction of the Indies. In it, he stated with no reservations, what was happening in the Caribbean. And Carrie Gibson, in her book El Norte, describes some of these passages like this. Quote, He minced no words in explaining how Spanish conquistadors, quote, quoting Las Casas, forced their way into native settlements, slaughtering everyone they found there. They hacked them to pieces, slicing open their bellies with swords as though there were so many asleep herded in a pen. End quote. Gibson continues, 
Those who survived often fared little better as laborers where, quote, quoting Las Casas again, the men died down the mines from overwork and starvation, and the same was true of the women who perished out on the estates, end quote. Now, this book was written in 1542 and actually did have an impact. And in 1542, Carlos V enacted the new laws of the Indies. And with it, the encomienda system that was so prevalent in the West Indies slowly faded away. Now, this is where things get interesting. Las Casas was a, was a man of his time. He saw the brutality of the killing of natives, but as a replacement, he suggested that the natives should be replaced in the mines by other slaves, non-native slaves, mainly those from Africa. He held a very paternalistic view of the natives and felt that they were too weak to be working in the mines and must be replaced by others. And at the time, the only others that he could think of were African slaves. This replacement may have, it probably was, just as brutal, deadly, and consequential as the encomienda system was in the beginning. Aside from just impacting Spain, this, these writings, this new system, gave rise to the Protestant insistence that the Catholics were evil. See, this was right after the Reformation, and the Protestants and Catholics were killing each other, persecuting each other, depending on where you lived, and this just gave more fuel to that fire. So this slave trade that eventually took hold of in Spain, which I won't go into depth here, I will have a full episode about the entirety of the slave trade during this era, it took hold after 1542. But, and by 1547, Las Casas denounced these new ideas, this idea that he tried to push the king to enact. He saw how evil it was as well. But his focus remained on the native treatment by the Spanish, and he would travel between Spain and the New World to help defend the lives of natives all around in the West Indies. He debated in Spanish courts on behalf of the native population and claimed that Christian laws have no sway over them, and they should, that they should not be punished for not abiding by them. And he continued to write as well. He wrote the book Historia de las Indias, which is the history of the Indies, which was supposed to be released in 1606. And it was a another, another manuscript detailing the terrible conditions of all of the Spanish colonies. But unfortunately, it wasn't released until 1875. So when Las Casas died in 1566, the colonial exploits continued just as before. However, there was a new, potentially even bigger cost, African slaves. Now, as I said, I'm not going to go into slavery here. I think that that deserves its own episode and will be a continuing theme throughout American history. But I'm going to talk about the other impact of what happened here over these past hundred years from around 1492 to around 1590, where the next episode will take off from there, focusing mostly on the eastern seaboard of, the, of North America. I think there's multiple different facets of this, and this is where the idea of the genocide of the natives becomes very messy. 
See, the, the, the Spanish were brutal. As detailed by Las Casas, they were absolutely destructive and downright ambivalent to native lives at all. They saw them just as a means to an end, to get gold, to make money, and after the gold was gone, to, to plant their sugar and harvest it. But the natives were not, they were no slouches. You have to remember, and each society was different, but you have to remember that these people had their own societies, they fought wars, so they knew how to fight a war. They just didn't know the war that they were fighting. And the main war that they were fighting was against unseen enemies that no one really knew or understood. The Europeans understood it much more clearly than the natives because they had been going through centuries and centuries of these pathogens, destroying communities, destroying countries, from all the way back to the Black Plague. Now, they did not know what caused it. Many of them thought that they could pray away the sickness. They understood that it spread between people, but they thought it was more a scent thing. They thought bad odor is what caused diseases to spread, not these tiny little organisms being spread between people. And the natives, they did not have any exposure to these diseases until 1492. The natives were much more well-suited to be protected against parasitic diseases than bacterial or viral ones, which is what they largely died because of. There's been lots of study to try to figure out why the natives were so impacted, so heavily impacted by these diseases. The most common reason people believe is because the natives were much more able to fight off parasitic diseases. Their immune systems were built to fight parasites, which are often found in the food that they ate, rather than microbial. And the difference between parasitic and microbial is that microbial diseases usually spread very easily with large populations, which the natives obviously had. Parasitic ones do not spread as easily. And the spread of diseases was not uniform among all of the different areas of the Americas. We heard earlier that the Tenochtitlan was hit extremely hard, but that was because it's very a very heavily populated city, similar to Cusco in Peru. The northeastern regions were also hit, but much less so because they were much more spread out, and even more so, the southwest was almost completely unscathed. They were still impacted, and they would have to consolidate their small towns, but they were much uh, the the percentage of people that died was much much lower. Regardless, by 1592, uh, we'll just say 1600, between 90 and 95 percent of the native population in America was dead. For instance, in central Mexico, it's estimated that around 25 million people lived in the Oaxaca Valley and throughout central Mexico in 1518. By 1623, there were less than a million. I believe last episode I said somewhere around 100 million people to 150 million people. We don't really know. The best estimates are somewhere between 80 and 160, but it's hard to know. Regardless, from 1492 to 1600, that population decreased by 90 to 95%, meaning it went from 80 to 100 to 120 million people down to about 7 million in the course of a century. 
It's impossible to know how many were caused by the Spanish specifically, you know, working them to death or killing them, but it's incredibly unlikely that they killed that many people by hand. Further evidence of this fact is is the empty villages that the English found in the early 17th century when they first started exploring the Northeast more heavily. There's no way the Spanish got to all of these people. Now, the Spanish obviously did want to destroy the native population in some way. That was their goal. And by native population, I mean destroy their culture. That was necessary for them, they felt, in order to make them proper workers. They need to be Christians. There is some some evidence that the Spanish were only trying to convert people as a way to say that they were following the rules and not actually meaning to convert them. But regardless, the, the stated mission was to convert the people in these in the West Indies in order to turn them into Christians, thus making them better workers. That was the idea. And I think the problem that comes along with this is trying to direct blame, specific blame, for what happened to the native population. It's obvious that they were treated terribly, and they will be continuously treated terribly throughout American history, and I will talk about that. But in this instance, it's hard to assign blame directly to any specific person, any specific group of people, for the vast amounts of death that occurred in the New World. We can't hold a Nuremberg trial for the death of 80 to 100 million people. It's impossible, because not every single one of those was on purpose. The vast majority were not. And there were some, uh, Las Casas being the most outspoken and most well-known, there were lots of people that got along just fine with the natives. They were also Spanish or French or Dutch or English. They married, got married with them, had children, actually started families with some natives. So it's complex. And the problem is, when you have a tragedy this large and there's no one to blame, it can almost feel like you're excusing it, like it was meant to happen or that it was preordained or something like that. But I think we can look at this and look at individual cases, uh, the Columbuses, the Las Casas, the Cortezes, the De Leones, and every single future colonial effort that we see from here on out. We can look at each of them and determine whether or not what they were doing was righteous in their own eyes or even given the cultural world that they were living in, that they were doing something wrong. Now, when you look at things through history, it's hard not to see every single person that lived before us as evil because they lived in a world that didn't have the same ideals that we do. But I think it's important when looking at these things to be more granular about it. We can call some of these events genocides. We can call what Columbus and the conquistadors did in Hispaniola, we can call that a genocide. But it would be hard to call what happened in Tenochtitlan a genocide. And I'm talking about the people that died between the two battles. Those people did not die at the hands of the Spanish on purpose. They died to a disease that was brought by the Spanish, unbeknownst to them. So I think it's important when we look at these things to be more granular, more careful, and more explicit about the words that we use. Because I think, in this case, I think that we can call what happened in 1492 and the aftermath of it a tragedy by circumstance 
with no one specific to blame. Broken into, torn apart, worlds colliding, and there we are, here I stay. It's a fake.